We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. Earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me on A Word from the Word. Well, we're back in full swing now with our revived series, Oh, That First Means That with three new sessions under our belt. Parts 32 and 33 were devoted to a hot potato text, Romans 8, 35 through 39. And last time, part 34 unpacked that wonderful exclamation in Psalm 118, 24. In today's part 35, we'll really need to secure our detective's cap on our heads, bring our spiritual magnifying glass to the rescue, and strap on our Hebrew sandals again. So, we don't just cavalierly and authoritatively bark out what we think a verse means, especially in today's case, dissecting and unraveling Isaiah 28, 1-13, which can be a puzzling portion to ponder. Because we're continuing to scrutinize Bible passages, we believed mean one thing, but discovering they mean something quite different. If you missed any of the new sessions or wish to access the original Archive 31 sessions, just go to faithtalk1360.com for local program podcasts. The archived sessions begin in January 2022. Our series goal is to illuminate Bible passages or portions that have either been misread, mistaught or explained, or misapplied. And friends, let me say again that I take no pleasure in bringing these erroneous perspectives to light or get any glee from critically examining texts we preachers, teachers, and pastors so easily pontificate and present as if there's only one way to see them. And you know why, friends. Because the Bible has a story to tell us. It's crying out, actually screaming out to tell us its story. But what do we pastors, teachers, and preachers, and even average Christians do? We force or manipulate the Bible to tell our story. And why I say, shame on us. And Isaiah, the Hebrew prophet of God, Yahweh, certainly has a story to tell, doesn't he? His name actually means Yah saves, or Yah is salvation. 
condition. And if we want to know what spiritual condition the Israelites were in, we can just read chapter 1. In fact, I invite you, friends, to read all of Isaiah 1. The opening verses include, The Lord, Yahweh, has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. Friends, this word rebelled is a strong word. It means to rebel, revolt, offend, and transgress. Then chapter 1 continues, Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord, Yahweh. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Whoa, what if that was your resume? Well, God through Isaiah is not done yet, friends. Chapter 1 continues. Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there's no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with olive oil. Notice the progression of intensity. God now calls Israel Sodom and Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, Yahweh, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. And friends, this word instruction is the Hebrew word Torah, a word we misperceive as referring to laws we're to obey out of sheer duty. But the Hebrews saw these as instructions on how to live and please God out of love for him. Well, God's legitimate rant continues, and friends, I hope we're able to read between the lines of Isaiah 1 and compare how we in the body of Christ sometimes behave. The multitudes of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says Yahweh? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I've no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I can't bear your worthless assemblies, your new moon feasts, and your appointed festivals. I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. Your hands are full of blood." Whoa! Now there's a side of God we don't hear preached very often, right? And friends, please don't respond. That's Old Testament stuff. You married men, have you ever read 1 Peter 3, 7 and taken it seriously? Husbands, treat your wives with consideration as the weaker partners, and show them honor as joint heirs of the grace of life. In this way, nothing will hinder your prayers. Hmm... Friends, these are not isolated, standalone texts in Scripture. The psalmist in Psalm 66, 18 confesses, If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Isaiah 1, 15, that we just read a moment ago, is mirrored in Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. I propose, friends, even James is alluding to this very idea when he says in James 4, 1 through 4, 
What causes wars and battles among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterers, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. David himself seems to understand what God's lament and complaint is against the Israelites in Isaiah's time. Listen to David's repentant heart in Psalm 51. You, Yahweh, do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. What amazes me, friends, about David's confession in Psalm 51 and God's complaint against his chosen people in Isaiah 1 is that God himself instituted the animal sacrificial system. This tells me that systems don't save. It's always been and continues to be to this day that it's the condition of our spirit or our heart that matters to God. Well, friends, this all has been a fitting backstory to Isaiah's prophetic ministry in his book and particularly today's scriptures under scrutiny, chapter 28. You probably thought I forgot about that, didn't you? Well, I didn't. And really, today's session is called Precept Upon Precept, Line upon line. Really? I say this not disrespectfully, but out of amazement that a portion of scripture such as this could be read with such nearsightedness in view of the theme of Isaiah's book, the chapters leading up to chapter 28 and 28 itself. I so appreciated the testimony of Abigail Dodds in her online article, Precept Upon Precept, A Common and Serious Problem in Bible Study. Dodds shared that in her own church experience, these verses about precept upon precept were quoted and extolled if one was going to take studying the Bible seriously. She even recalls hearing that it's the only right way to study the Bible, as well as singing this scripture as a chorus in her church. But over time, she began singing, I Isaiah 28, 10-13, with a confused conscience. After re-looking at those two verses with the precept statements, she began to wonder if they could possibly mean what she and her church thought they meant. Interesting, right? After all, haven't I been saying all this time? We're continuing to scrutinize Bible passages we've believed or thought meant one thing, but we're discovering that they mean something quite different. Well, at first, Dodds was too embarrassed and fearful to voice her concerns. After all, she was no Bible expert, but she sensed that the prophet Isaiah was really using these phrases about precepts and lines to mock and judge Israel and her apostate leaders. Well, in due time, Abigail Dodds, her husband, and some friends at her church took some time to put on their detective's caps, pull out their spiritual magnifying glasses, put on their Hebrew sandals, and comb through some resources, which ultimately confirmed her suspicions. Well, friends, I'm happy to share the conclusions Dodds arrived at after doing her own search, after taking a Berean's journey. In other words, searching the scriptures to see if what she was originally taught and believed was actually true. By the way, the Berean's journey is found in Acts 17, 10 through 12. Check it out for yourself and adopt it as your own mantra for studying the Bible.
So, friends, here's Abigail Dodd's personal conclusions, and then we'll go on our own Berean journey and see if Abigail's observations and conclusions can be verified, okay? Isaiah 28, 9 through 13 is really a passage of mocking and judgment. Precept upon precept and line upon line are the way of folly and gibberish, according to God, which just so happens to be the opposite of what I had understood it to mean the many times I'd heard it quoted out of context. Isaiah 28 pronounces judgment on God's people. They are drunk and proud, and although there's much for them to learn from God, they're like foolish, immature children, learning in such a way that they never really learn. When they hear the teaching, it's like a foreign language. This precept upon precept learning, this here a little, there a little knowledge, is working against them, and they'll be broken by it, just as they stumble over the stone of offense and the rock of stumbling. So, what is this line-upon-line method of learning that has ensnared God's people? How do we avoid it? Is Isaiah saying that we shouldn't look closely at every line? Is he saying... That slow and careful study is a bad idea? No, quite the opposite. But he is saying that there's a kind of learning that is fastidious, meaning concern for details and accuracy, but also catchy, repeatable, and deadly. There's a way to learn that's like children playing the game Ring Around the Rosy meaning that we're not always aware of the original setting and meaning. So this kind of Bible study is a catechism that specializes in missing the point. And I think she's using the term catechism because one of its meanings is a series of precepts used for the instruction of Christians. Perhaps she was intentionally making a play on words. Well, friends, before we take our own road trip through Isaiah 28, 10 through 13, I'm inviting you to read through chapter 28 in its entirety. But let me highlight some key statements made by Isaiah between verses 1 and 9 to set the stage and supply the immediate context. 28.1 is a whopper of an intro. It says, Woe to that wreath, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards, to that city, the pride of those laid low by wine. Now, most of us are likely familiar with this Bible word, woe, but it's helpful to carefully define it as the Bible uses it. Recall Jesus used the term against the Jewish religious leaders and particularly the Pharisees. Woe from the Bible's standpoint includes having righteous anger and lamenting over ungodly behavior. It also includes predicting suffering, misfortune, calamity, and affliction that cause grief. Aside from the woe in Isaiah 28.1, there's six woes in chapter 5 that are enlightening. I'll amplify a few of them. First, 5.8, consolidating land against God's specific laws. Second, 5.11, drunkenness and revelry, particularly relevant to chapter 28. Third, 5.18, compounding sinfulness. Fourth, 520, using language to justify evil. We all know this verse, right? Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Here's the rest of it. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Here the Israelites and their leaders adopted a code of morality that was utterly opposed to God's laws and ethics. Fifth, 
5.21, self-conceit. In other words, being wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. And sixth, 5.22, corruption associated with intoxication. In other words, those who became heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixed drinks, who acquit the guilty for a bribe but deny justice to the innocent. Also particularly relevant to chapter 28. Ah, but we don't see this happening in our world today, do we? Okay, now chapter 28.3. That wreath, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards, will be trampled underfoot. Some scholars suggest the use of wreath here may have a double meaning. In the context of drunkards, it could refer to partying attire and drunken revelry. Or it could refer to that part of the northern kingdom Ephraim had, and the city mentioned at the end of verse 1, like likely Samaria, which was assigned to the house of Joseph, to the tribe of Ephraim and half of Manasseh. In this case, the battlement walls, with their indentations and its towers around the top of the hill, set in a fertile valley, may have had the appearance of a wreath on a person's head. Either way, God's judgment was certain. The wreath will be hurled to the ground. Well, let's pause here, friends. If you tuned in late, you're listening to A Word from the Word. With me, your host, Pastor Tom. I value you as listeners to A Word from the Word, which is listener-funded. Your financial partnership keeps this program on the air, which also disciples many Christians without a church home, plus those of you who may have been wounded by the institutional church. Join forces with me and A Word from the Word by emailing me for support details at awordfromtheword@me minister.com. We'll repeat this info at the end of the program. Now in Isaiah 28.5, there's an interesting contrast. Yahweh Almighty will himself become a beautiful and glorious wreath and crown for Israel's remnant. And where there's injustice and unbalanced judgment, he will be a spirit of justice. Isaiah 28, 7 through 9 are pretty graphic and gross, at least a PG-13. The drunkenness of the priests and prophets make them real, stagger, possibly hallucinate, and stumble at making rulings. Their tables are covered with vomit, and filth is a kind translation for dung or human excrement. Not a pretty sight. Maybe some of you remember your own BC days and times like that. Friends, the prefacing statement that appears right before verse 10 is critical, for it's where we get the idea that Isaiah's next set of words are equated to a child's gibberish. Verse 9 says, Who is it he's trying to teach? To whom is he explaining his message? To children weaned from their milk? To those just taken from the breast? Now, friends, if this is Isaiah speaking, these entry words that precede verse 10 must be referring to someone else. Well, I personally side with those who take this to mean the religious leaders. In other words, those drunken and carousing priests, prophets, and elders. Isaiah is repeating their own insults made to him. It's as if they're saying, whom does he think he's teaching? Infants barely weaned? Why this stammering precept upon precept, this line upon line, with here a little and there a little? Now, friends, here's where our challenge lies, and we've got to admire the valiant efforts of numerous English translation committees who, I'm sure, have shaken their heads when they attempt to translate the Hebrew statement here in verse 10 that repeats verbatim in verse 13. So the best way to appreciate this is to hear the actual Hebrew words and how they almost sound like repeating nursery rhyme with a rhythmic feel. Sav la sav, sav la sav, kav la kav, kav la kav, ze'er shom, ze'er shom. 
Notice the repetition of identical words strung together. Now listen to a select group of English translations that attempt to communicate these words. King James Version and ESV are similar. For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. New American Standard, for he says order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. The Net Bible, indeed they will hear meaningless gibberish, senseless babbling, a syllable here, a syllable there. The Holman Christian Standard Bible, for he says law after law, law after law, line after line, line after line, a little here, a little there. The NIV, for it is do this, do that, a rule for this, a rule for that, a little here, a little there. New Living, he tells us everything over and over, one line at a time, one line at a time, a little here, a little there. The Contemporary English Version, you don't even listen, all you hear is senseless sound after senseless sound. God's Word Translation, they speak utter nonsense. The Jewish Publication Society's respected Hebrew translation doesn't clarify this much either. That same mutter upon mutter, murmur upon murmur, now here, now there, for it's precept by precept, precept by precept, line by line, lie by line, here a little, there a little. Friends, we can almost tell which perspective the various English translation teams hold regarding who is saying this and why. And if we take this string of Hebrew words at face value, this is what we'd get. Perhaps a command, perhaps a command, perhaps a command, perhaps a command. And this is not a translation, only a suggestion for what the word may be implying. This is for the first four Hebrew words, tzav l'sav, tzav l'sav. Then the next four words would be a line, a line, a line, a line. For the next four Hebrew words, kav l'kav, kav l'kav. The last four words would be there, thither, there, thither. For the last four Hebrew words, ze'er shom, ze'er shom. And thither means to or toward that place. Perhaps through a more modern dynamic type translation, we see an interesting use of the first four Hebrew words that imply a command. The voice translation says, command after command, command on top of command. Then it continues, rule after rule, rule on top of rule, a little here, a little there. Now you know, friends, why this portion of Scripture has been declared the most controversial and enigmatic or mysterious and puzzling passage in the prophet Isaiah's book. But I don't want to leave us in a quandary or mystified here. Personally, I think there's a few clues left for us to make a reasonable assessment of what's intended here. And that's one of the keys of interpretation, discovering what the author's intent is. An older out-of-print translation, the New Jerusalem Bible, with a bevy of notes, has a comment on 28.10, which would naturally carry over to verse 13. Literally, order on order, order on order, rule on rule, rule on rule, a little here, a little there. But there's no point in translating the words, since they were chosen for their sound. Perhaps an entry in the Beacon Bible commentary bears considering. With this series of monosyllables, the drunken priests and prophets make light of Isaiah's precepts, rating him as an intolerable moralist. As for themselves, they're full-grown and free, and don't need him to teach them knowledge. 
My take, friends, is that two clues have been left for us to decipher, verse 9 and verse 13. Verse 9 tells me that since Isaiah is speaking, he must be referring to someone else, and that someone else must be those in his intended audience, as spelled out in 28, 1 through 8, Ephraim's drunkards, specifically the priests and prophets in verse 7. Verse 13, the Hebrew reads like our English. So then the word of the Lord, Yahweh, to them will become. And verse 10's monosyllables are repeated, which reinforces that these gibberish-like words were meant for those priests and prophets. I might suggest that the first occurrence in verse 10 is Isaiah repeating his detractors' criticisms of his message from Israel's God, Yahweh. Then in verse 13, Isaiah turns their words back on their own heads, because these gibberish-like words now become the Lord's words back to them. After all, verse 11 declares that God will speak to Isaiah's detractors and the rebellious Israelites with foreign lips and strange languages, which likely refer to the Assyrians, whom God eventually uses to discipline his chosen people by taking them captive. God's judgments will come, even if in a foreign language. It's curious that the Assyrian language is mainly composed of monosyllables and three fundamental vowels. So perhaps the string of Hebrew monosyllables that sound like the gibberish of a baby were a foreboding of what was to come for Israel. They rejected their true rest, verse 12. Now they'll invite God's judgment. So the heathen conquerors will utter the Hebrew God's precepts to a people that wouldn't listen to the Hebrew God's chosen voice, Isaiah. And despite Isaiah's detractors, he stayed faithful to his call, calling Israel and its debauched leaders to repentance and renewed commitment to God's word and plan. Friends, are we equally bold and committed to God's mission? If you can say amen, I'll say it with you. Amen. Well, friends, we're at the end of our program. I hope it's been edifying and as well as challenging. A listener recently wrote in regarding the debut of the Oh, That Verse Means That series, Session A on Romans 8, 35 through 39, with, I'm blessed to see someone discuss Romans 8, 17 through 39, accurately and in context, instead of using the verse carelessly as a salvation text, instead of an awesome encouragement to suffering Christians. Thanks for your feedback, and as promised, we'll close with an email where you may write me and inquire about how to financially support a word from the word. I love coming alongside those of you without a church home or those who may have been wounded by the institutional church. Podcasts are posted at faithtalk1360.com. Podcasts are also on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And thanks to my friends and partners at ChristianBody.net, our program is aired on 70-plus countries. Friends, please consider investing in the mission of a word from the word and help keep us on the air. Well, thanks for listening today, friends. And remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with A Word from the Word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com.